I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. All right, guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. G'day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Simon Ferguson, Manager of Visitor Experiences from the Territory Wildlife Park. G'day, mate. G'day, how are you going? Very well. We just had an amazing walk around the, the park here. Thank um, you. What a beautiful park. It's, it sure is an amazing place to work. We are truly blessed to, to be able to work in such beautiful surrounds. It's so much nicer than a lot of zoos you go to where you're just walking, there's concrete and there's cages and, you know, they have their role and they have their place, but this is set in three very distinct natural environments, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. So the the park itself is like a combination of a national park and a wildlife park, I guess, with a combination of constructed exhibits um, melted into the natural environment, I guess. All, all of the exhibits have a naturalistic outlook and, um, yeah, they, they blend into the natural environment, which is fantastic. The park is very, very large, uh, as I think you've discovered this morning. Uh, we've got a shuttle train that, that moves around to help people uh, between the major exhibits but there's over four kilometres of walking tracks through those natural uh, habitats and uh, going way back to when the park was first started uh, the site is actually interesting um, in that this site was chosen as it contained uh, really good examples of wetlands, woodlands and monsoon forest that wasn't damaged by Cyclone Tracy. So the actual, yeah, the reason the park is here as opposed to not somewhere else is is very interesting. Yeah, it's fantastic. And we, uh, walking around today, we we saw Merton's water monitors, wild Merton's water monitors. Was that near the Billabong? Yes, we saw two. They would have been probably, what, yearlings? Uh, Yeah, I'd say yearlings. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Because they get knocked around a bit by the cane toads, don't they? That's right. So uh, in about 2006, 2007 we had uh, the introduced cane toad move through the top end and uh, a lot of species were almost totally wiped out. Uh, As far as I'm I'm aware there's been no recorded extinctions caused by cane toads, it just massively lowers the the carrying capacity of individual species. Uh, Over time we've thankfully seen a number of species uh, start to recover and in the last couple of years I've seen more mertens than I have in many years before for that. Uh, interestingly as well, the frillnecks locally seem to be making a, a similar comeback. So um, looking forwards, I'm hoping um, even larger predators like the mulga, the mulga snake or the floodplains monitor will also come back, fingers crossed. Wow. Nice. The, what's the floodplains monitor? Uh, Panoptes, Veranus Panoptes. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah okay. Ye- uh, yellow, yellow spotted. Yeah, yeah that's it. Got it. Yeah, got him. Um, well, I worked here about 15 years ago and I just remember like walking around the park and I, all the wild animals that you see, like the frill necks and the, uh, the freckled tree monitors. And, yeah. And there was one thing that really stood out to me. We saw this animal and it was the middle of the day and it was walking on the ground. It was a mammal and it was golden and none of us knew what it was for about 30 seconds. It was a golden brush-tailed possum. Oh, really? Mm. Wow, mm. that's incredible. Yeah. The, um, I know that uh, golden brush-tailed possums are now quite common in captivity, but I didn't know they'd been recorded up here in the northern race. That's pretty cool. It, it blew my mind. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Actually here at the park. Yeah, just a wild one just sauntering through in the middle of the day oh, on the ground. Oh, phenomenal. I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, 
So, mate, you're a you're a bit of a reptile guy. You've got a you've got your own private collection of reptiles. Yeah, that's true. Um, have you you always been into reptiles? Uh, yes and no. Um, as a kid, I was more interested in birds. It was uh, just birds, everything, birds this, birds that, and uh, it's interesting because uh, I was actually terrified of snakes as a child, uh, to the point where if we saw a snake, I, I grew up on a farm in Central West New South Wales, um, so brown snakes were pretty pretty common. But if if we'd seen a snake through the day, I would have nightmares that night. I was absolutely terrified. But then when I was 16 or around about that, I had a fairly close encounter with a brown snake and um, it somehow changed my fear to fascination like in an instant. Um, so I'll just, I'll, I'll give you a bit more detail about that, that story. So uh, we had a few chooks and originally we'd had turkeys. So um, dad had built this, this chook yard and this turkey yard and the turkey yard was probably only about five foot tall with a with a netting roof, so not really great to stand up in. And the turkeys had long since gone, and I'd I'd put pigeons in there. So I'd walked through this tiny narrow door into this low roofed enclosure. I'd stepped over the pigeons' nesting box, which was just a, a wooden box placed on the floor, and. Um, I then, I can't remember why, but I then picked up the nesting box and there was a brown snake underneath it, um, which was then effectively between me and the door and in this obviously fairly cramped enclosure. The snake itself just took off. It it exited the enclosure straight through the chooks and out the other side. It was wanting no business there at all. And yeah, I'm not sure what happened inside my head, but that really changed me from fear to fascination with with reptiles. And I've been absolutely reptile mad ever since. (laughs) And as you say, that we're sitting next to this amazing massive what that was that a uh, two and a half meter by two and a half meter enclosure. Yeah. Um, for your for your beautiful big mulga snake. Yeah. And that's a big mulga snake. It's a big mulga snake. <laughs> that's that's huge. your pet. Uh, he's not my pet, but he's one of the animals that I'm responsible for here at the park, and um, he's probably my favourite. We try not to have favourites, but I, he's probably my favourite here at the park. Um, so for those listening that are not totally familiar, a mulga snake is Australia's largest venomous snake. Um, they're brown in colour, but they're actually a member of the black snake family so uh, up here in the top end and across most of their range which does extend over most of Australia most of inland Australia um, they are reptile eaters Um, so they like to eat other reptiles including other venomous snakes and uh, yeah a lot of people would look at them and say oh that's a brown snake obviously because they have brown scales but uh, that uh, yeah uh, common furphy the, the king brown it's just funny because it's not even a brown it's a black snake family it just happens to be brown yeah. but um, yeah they're one of the species that have um, been absolutely decimated by cane toads up here um, obviously they eat reptiles they are also quite fond of frogs and uh, being totally naive to the, the dangers of cane toads when they came through they ate the toads and, and perished due to the toads inbuilt poison the, uh, they, they still are around in a few places, um, which is, is good to see. Occasionally they turn up, and I'm hoping over time that they, their numbers do increase, uh, like the Mertens and the Frillneck lizards have. So fingers crossed there's hope on the outlook for, for them. Uh, this particular individual uh, was caught in 2004. He was caught here on the park at about 90 centimetres. So I was guessing he's probably about two-year-old or in his second year at that stage. So probably born in about 2002. Um, it makes him a fairly, fairly old snake now, but certainly going, going very strong. 
He is about the two and a half metre mark in length. It's beautiful. He is By far <laughs> the biggest mulga snake. <laughs> he, he is a very impressive creature and, um, yeah, probably as thick as um, uh, yeah, a normal man's arm, I guess, in terms of thickness. So he's a very impressive snake. Um, and he's one of my favourites, obviously because of his size and his impressive outlook. But we, we've actually trained him to enter a trap box to feed so that we can safely service the enclosure. So for those people at home, uh, what that looks like is we have a, a plywood box, uh, which is about... 30 centimetres by 40 centimetres by 60 centimetres. It has a small hole just large enough to fit his body in on one end and that also has a slide. Um, So it's just a wooden board that slides down in a groove that seals off that hole. So um, we feed him two two rats once a fortnight. That's all he eats. Um, Reptiles are incredible with their metabolisms. Very, very different to mammals. So we put two rats inside the box. We insert the box into the enclosure and usually within a couple of minutes he is already going into the box Um, I'll never forget the first time ever that we tried this with him I had no idea what what reaction we were going to get because he'd never seen a box before he'd never (laughs) had to enter a box to to get a rat before but uh, the power of his uh, tongue to to taste those scent molecules um, he was straight into those very food motivated um, animal which is nice but uh, so being so long he didn't need to necessarily put his whole body in to get the rat so I uh, waited till he had about a third of his body in I then gently uh, touched uh, towards his back end with a hook and he was a little bit jumpy because he'd never had that happen before, but not overly jumpy. Um, And that was just enough to encourage him to continue into the box and I closed the slide and in it went. He has progressed so far since then. He is now almost totally desensitised to our touch with the hook. He's very, very calm. And in fact, the other week, while his head was in, another staff member was dealing with uh, with him entering the box I was actually able to lift up his tail curl his tail up and look at his vent and he did not show any signs of discomfort at that whatsoever and I thought wow this snake is so comfortable with with what we do here it's yeah just yeah, brilliant you'd expect him to drop food at that point and you, you'd just, expect yeah, yeah mm. some form of adverse reaction but he's so calm and so comfortable he knows what's going on he knows what's to expect and uh, he's straight into that box now uh, so the reason this is significant, I guess, is that by by consistently getting him into that box, we can then enter the enclosure safely to clean, um, yeah, provide fresh leaf litter, um, remove any shed skins or, or whatever need be. It's, it's an amazing scenario and a great feeling to know that I can successfully stress-free move an animal into a box so that we can service it um, especially considering it's a very dangerous animal absolutely i see with the salty that's a similar setup isn't it yeah that's exactly right three and a half meter salty you don't want to get in there with him no exactly so he's uh he resides within our aquarium and his enclosure is half land half water and the the visitors actually get to look through glass into his pond so you get to understand what a crocodile looks like under the water surface because a lot of the time looking from above uh, they're so perfectly designed that only their ears eyes and nose rest above the water surface they are the perfect ambush predator from that aquatic environment but uh, to be able to 
see how, uh, what they do underwater is just a, a brilliant perspective. But uh, similar, he has a an off-display enclosure right behind his display exhibit, and um, he will shift um, very readily for food to... Um, so that we can service that enclosure, basically. It would be impossible to get in there with him. It's it's such a beautiful <laughs> enclosure. I mean, it, the, the water's so beautiful and clean. It's, it's just a great thing to see, yeah, isn't you it? You get a good look at the crocodile. You really it's do. Amazing. Yeah. It's quite close to you. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. I remember one of the most awesome things I did here when, when I was here last time was... Um, and, and really, effectively, you're just putting your head near glass. It's not that exciting. But he was—he used to be right up against the glass. I think there's a, there's a big log in there to stop him from doing that. I don't. If that's, uh, is that to stop him from doing that? Or? No. Um, okay. he, he, he quite often lies right up against the log, which okay. is, again is a, um, helping with that ambush um, strategy that gotcha. they deploy. But he still often has his um, his face right up to the glass. Oh, oh he does. Yeah, oh, cool. He often it's just does a, that. If you if you got to come here and you got to see this because when he's got his head right there. You can put your head right there, and you've basically got your your head an inch away from, you know, what is it, 3,700 3, pounds per square inch of bite of pressure, pressure or something. That's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah if you, I mean, even though you're, you're safe, it's just surreal. It's you absolutely surreal. <laughs> I learned that from Steve Batchel. Um, <laughs> you did. Yeah. Which you met Steve Batchel too when he was I have. I've, I've worked with Steve. Steve's an amazing bloke. Um, I was lucky enough to work with him when he did his uh, stage show. Yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> He, uh, yeah, talking about Steve Batchel and the amount of energy that he, he gives um, yeah. was off the hook, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah it, made, it made me realise I need to lift my game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we went through the, um, the uh, talking about the aquariums there, you've got like, it's like a cave that you walk through. What would you, what uh, the you tunnel? call it? The tunnel. Yeah, yeah. so um, our, our aquarium is uh, so it's inside a building um, and it follows the movement of water from the the sandstone escarpments the little rock pools in the escarpments down through the creeks rivers um, tributaries uh, and then finally going out into the estuaries and then onto the coral reefs that occur up here in the top end so it's amazing to be able to trace the movement of that water obviously you can't appreciate um, the life underneath the water surface out in the wild due to the presence of large crocodiles. Mm-hmm. So our aquarium is a unique um, place where you get to see that water below, uh, the, the life below the water surface. And uh, to be able to, to see the movement of, of water from such extreme habitats as the rock pools of the Arnhem Escarpment and the little rainbow fish that live there is, is just incredible in such a, a compact um, it's so environment. Stunning. The the tunnel itself is our our big river exhibit. Um, so we have species in there like the uh, the freshwater whipraids that occur in the Daly River. Um, it's hoped that in time we'll bring sawfish back again. We yeah, have had used sawfish, to be sawfish in there sawfish in the past. That, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, the, I, I I said that to Steve and he said, well, they probably cut their way out. This, this <laughs> guy you. with the jokes. Yeah. <laughs> Good old dad jokes. <laughs> yep. um, so sawfish are, uh, and there, there's uh, three species of sawfish up here, um, one of which occurs um, mostly in freshwater. So it's it's uh, yeah, it's the one that occurs in the big rivers. Such a crazy looking animal. Like yeah, a, it like is. It's, it's a bit like a shark with a, a really long... Um, protrusion off its nose called a rostrum with yeah, teeth basically sticking out the edges of it. It's it's kind of like one of those hedge trimming machines. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It really is. Yeah. yeah. 
Uh, so yeah, the, the tunnel exhibit is is incredible, and, and and that's where our mermaids will be actually next week. Um, we are bringing in the Perth mermaids uh, as a school holidays activity. Uh, the the mermaids will be swimming around uh, through the school holidays in our tunnel. That's awesome. I will let Marie know, my cousin Marie Mankara, think, yeah. who's doing a PhD on the mermaid archetype. So very very cool it is we, we saw it we saw a kingfisher it wasn't the forest kingfisher we saw a kingfisher that had like a like a red belly and, and blue on the back over in the in the um what's the lagoon called the um the billabong the billabong yeah and um, i got a photo and I'll, I'll look it up I get yeah i'm keen to see your photo yeah i'm, I'm chicken birds this year so oh, yeah? I, I haven't seen one with red on it we have a red-backed kingfisher um yeah I'm i think he was think red whether they have a red, dusty front too um, I'm not sure. Our, our common ones are the forest kingfisher, which okay. have a, a white breast and a, a royal blue wing. Yeah, um, we've got the sacred kingfishers as well, um, oh, which okay. have a less clean white chest and sort of a more uh, turquoisey green wing. Um, but yeah, one with red on it could be interesting. Yeah, I'll show you. <clears throat> yeah, we've got the. Oh, maybe Steve's going to get it up now. Which is really bad. I didn't. Oh no, that's an azure kingfisher. Azure. Uh, yeah. Oh, is that a female? Is it? Uh, I'm not no? sure if that's okay. a male or female. Both sexes are very similar. Are they? Um, okay. <clears throat> they're uh, quite a small bird with an incredibly large bill. They look very top-heavy um, and almost no tail. Um, they're, they're predominantly fishing species, so quite often seen around water bodies up here in the top end. And they're related in the same family as kookaburras, yep. which are a kingfisher, but they... That's right. Because the country's so dry, they just eat snakes and lizards now, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, I guess the, the kookaburras are a... a yeah, they've adapted to live away from water, whereas a lot of the kingfisher species have yeah, um, stuck along waterways and, and that sort of thing. Forests and sacreds, they yeah, can also be found away from waters, um, but obviously in less density. Um, the, yeah, the kookaburras are great, They're very iconic Australian species. Uh, we have a different. Uh, we have blue wing kookaburras up here. Um, down south, you'll see obviously the laughing, which um, yeah, quite a different call um, between the two species. Yeah. Okay. Great alarm clocks in the morning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, certainly are. Um, when I worked here, I spent most of my time over at Flight Deck, and yep. you do an amazing bird of prey show. That's right. Um, have you still got Errol, the black-breasted yeah, buzzard? You yes, do? Really? yeah, Errol's still around. How long do those bloody things live for? <laughs> um, I think she's in her 30s now, early 30s, but wow. um, I'd expect that she'll go into her 40s. Um, yeah, and she, I'm sure she's still just as much a character as she was when you worked with her. Wow. Uh, we have a new um, a black-breasted buzzard, um, which we only got within the last six months. Um, Gorge Wildlife Park um, down south has bred um, the species, and we were lucky enough to get one of the babies, uh, which we've finished hand-raising here uh, which will also go into our show. So without giving too much away, um, black-breasted buzzards are a third largest raptor species here in Australia. And they're, um, they've, they've come up with a unique way of getting into emu eggs. I'll um, leave the rest to the show when you come and see. Yeah, it's, it's quite cool. It? Yeah. <laughs> Do you still fly ospreys? Yes, we've, uh, we've got Aussie the osprey. Um, uh, he... Um, I'm not sure exactly how old Aussie is, um, but recently we also got a new osprey as well. Um, it was a young one that was found at Catherine Gorge by the rangers down there. Um, we're still not sure as to exactly why it was not fit to survive in the wild because um, they, they plucked it off the bank um, as a very thin bird and it showed no resistance to get away from them. So mm. they rang us and said, we've got this bird. We fully x-rayed it, couldn't find absolutely nothing wrong, but it has uh, taken to captive life um, and is is well and truly progressing in its training to enter the show as well. So it's got a very promising future in front of it as a, um, a performing bird. 
Fantastic. One of the best things about this place, I know we talked about it, is the fact that you are walking. I think you described it so well. It's a cross between a wildlife park and a national park. Yeah, it really is. Um, and you, one of the things about a national park is you can you can walk through it and not see much, but if you've got somebody with a bit of expertise showing you things, it can be a whole different experience. And this place, with all your amazing interpretive signage around the park, people might see a wild animal and go, well, we know what that is now, we just saw that. You know, yeah. it's, it's a really great um, great way to connect people back to, to nature and appreciate the biodiversity that we, we often talk about, we're losing. Um, Absolutely. So, so very positive. We, we put a lot of emphasis into our keeper talks and presentations that occur through the day and uh, we've got quite an extensive program that runs um, from quite early in the morning through to the afternoon and uh, we always try to build in some form of messaging around that because the reality is that people are having an impact on the environment um, and the reality is, is we can't live without the environment. So um, humans do need to change their ways and uh, we're here to um, we don't jam it down your throat so it's not a very um, it's yeah it's more subtle messaging but we do certainly encourage people to consider their impacts that they are having on the environment yeah and you can see that now that's something new that I've noticed is there is that environmental message like you say subtly put through and and there's a lot more art now around the place (laughs) yeah so yeah a lot of the times like it's a well-known fact that people don't read signs people are lazy if they can have it told to them even better that's why they go to shows and presentations I'm guilty as charged um, (laughs) for sure but um, art is is becoming I guess the new way of interpretation It, it engages on a far deeper level than any sign can and um, yeah I, I absolutely love the art um, we've got an artist in park uh, program as well that we run so every year we open up a set number of opportunities for external artists to come and utilize the park they get behind the scenes access and um, access to animal encounters and that sort of thing to help shape their art because I guess art is uh, art gets to the the wider population people that won't visit wildlife parks it's a new way of of engaging the, the public in terms of conservation that's great can we um look apart from your best mate your mulga stuff there <laughs> um what's your what's your favorite reptile you you keep stuff at home as well yeah i do um i try not to have favorites and i really don't name my pets um a lot of people think that's weird, but I just have far too many to name. <laughs> yeah, I can't name mine. I, um, I've, yeah, I've never been a real namer of pets. Um, my dogs have names, but a lot of my lizards and snakes don't. I love a dog. I would love to have a dog. Yeah? I'm jealous, but sorry, Karen, I'm getting to interrupt. Yeah. The, um, so I, ha- I keep mostly geckos, um, small skinks, um, things that a lot of other people don't keep. Um, I, yeah, I've, and, uh, like my interest in the natural kingdom often goes to weird things um like i like weird plants i like weird animals um yeah the stuff that people don't often keep i keep and I, yeah it's i guess it's a it's a learning thing because not a lot is known about the lesser kept species so much i challenge myself to learn about these species by keeping them and if i can breed them all that's fantastic um that's the ultimate um then knowing that your animals are uh, happy in when they breed because that they only do that when they've got everything they need so um yeah extensive collection of, of reptiles at home um one of the new ones i'm working with is a young merton's water monitor myself um and I'm just undergoing some desensitisation with it at the moment. I would like it to be able to be um, handleable, I guess. And Mertens have a, 
a grayed out look for that in that they're less inclined to bite than most of the other monitors and they seem to be a bit more laid back as well um, though they still do have a very extreme feeding response anyone that's worked with monitors will know exactly what especially I mean especially when you put crayfish in with them yes mm-hmm. yes yes unbelievable yep, prawns um, crayfish yeah. shrimp anything yeah. like that they will um, just about do backflips to get to yeah. them <laughs> yeah I love I love Mertens I've got one called Gary he's about eight years old he's a champion yeah. They don't seem, he doesn't seem to ever run away like you know some guys you put them on the ground and they'll bolt I think they're um, you know they're not one of those ones that run up trees or run into burrows they just flop into the water yeah um, so they just don't have that bolting instinct necessarily I've seen it happen but not so much with yeah. those guys yeah they're beautiful and we saw two wild mertens today mountains, didn't we yeah. Steve yeah. here here at the park at two the wild mertens mm, just um, walking around yeah yeah on one of the stunning walks because the walks through the park are just amazing there's so much to look at and then you come across an enclosure as well yeah. you can look at other stuff but mm. if you took the enclosures out it would still just be amazing that's for sure that's yeah. for sure i i love getting out and on park and and seeing sometimes it's the small things um like i was out on park on thursday and there was a tiny little green caterpillar only about um two and a half centimeters long walking across one of the the walking paths and it was doing the whole move the front section forward arch the body up bring the back section (laughs) forward it was just so cute and i'm like it's sometimes it's those tiny little things that just make it incredible you you Um, almost need a video camera with you all the time it's true yeah i've kept snakes for oh christ 30 years plus probably and it's still amazes me when i see one climbing up a vertical tree yes yes like that, yes the yes they do it and the big boa constricting in south america when you see that um it's just amazing the way they climb up yes yeah. it still amazes me now that's right? true we never bore of things like that we've got um the golden tree snake which is the the northern form of the the eastern or, or green tree snake yeah. um and it's incredible to see these this fluoro yellow um long thin snake um, climbing trees um, they don't typically use the, the same mechanisms that big pythons do to climb but they, it's just amazing how that they scale like you said vertical trees um, as they are an arboreal predator yeah they don't even seem to hold no they, like, just, go they just go up it <laughs> yeah. come on get your legs show us your legs <laughs> you've got hands there somewhere yeah. <laughs> I only saw one in the wild when I was here last time that was a uh, fog dam in, oh, up yes. in a pandanus there at the, oh, end of yes. the turnaround at the yep. end of the causeway yeah yeah, I think we're hitting the fog down tonight, by the way. I can't wait to go to fog down <laughs> The yeah. fog is, is legendary among the reptile community. Um, it's the highest known density of, of water pythons anywhere. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, yeah, the biology at, at fog dam is incredible. Um, even the history of, of fog dam is incredible. Um, it's a man-made structure. Uh, people from southern Australia, when they think of a, a dam, will probably think of a very high-walled, deep dam. Well, the dam wall on this one is probably about three metres high at its highest and uh, probably close to two kilometres wide. So it's a very uh, wide open water body which has been closed in um, by the the water plants but originally was constructed to uh, facilitate rice farming up here in the top end which um, failed catastrophically due to magpie geese but um, it has provided an amazing spot for wildlife spotting not just reptiles it's incredible for birds as well uh, out at Fogdam. Yeah we saw those um, 
when I was there, I went three times uh, 15 years ago, those Jacana. Oh, yes, really the, the lily trotters, they're incredible. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, little, um, yeah, chook-like birds with incredibly long toes that seemingly walk on water. Even out their weight distribution so they don't just plump into the, through the lilies. Yeah. Um, and a busted was standing in the middle of the, the causeway as we are driving, like, yeah. do we... Do we, do we go around it? <laughs> do I owe your money? They're intimidating looking birds. Um, that they are. And the amount of frog, I mean, there's those rocket frogs, that tiny frog that can jump metres, yep. incredible little frogs. And yeah, it's just a haven for, for wildlife. Um, through the day and through the night, it's, it's a great visit. Is there anything that you battle with at this park, like predator, like cane toads, etc.? Yeah, um, we, cane toads are prolific right across um, most of northern Australia now, and there is no large-scale large, large scale control of them as of yet. Um, so we, uh, we do, um, through the wet season, uh, toad busts. Um, we usually do them on a Friday night through the wet season um, where the public can come into the park for free um, through the evening. They help us round up a whole heap of cane toads, uh, which we then um, humanely euthanise. But... Um, through that we don't really have any impact on the toad population itself but it is incredibly great way of engaging the public and educating them about the species and about their impacts and about potentially what they can do at home to to lessen the impact that the toads are having Uh, so toads are probably our biggest threat to to the natural environment and to the biodiversity right across northern australia Uh, they're still spreading Um, they're they're now well into western australia moving through the kimberley uh, which is probably the last stronghold for the northern quoll so um, and yeah the the monitor um, abundance and diversity in the kimberley is probably um, uh, unrivaled anywhere else in Australia so uh, it's sad to see that those toads still moving through and and still causing such immense um, damage to the uh, natural systems. Yeah I hope they come up with some kind of a solution Mm. Yeah, I, I'm yeah, somewhat cynical that we'll find anything in, in the short term. Uh, yeah, hopefully yeah, into the future they are able to, to find something. They've done incredible work with um, uh, other, spe- other um, invasive species, looking at things like daughterless genes, um, like in terms of their genetics, so that uh, over time that you, you just produce less and less reproductive females. Uh, yeah, uh, who knows with modern technology what's what's yeah, capable? CRISPR and gene splicing and yeah. whatever all that stuff means. Yes, all that <laughs> stuff that goes well over my head. At this point. <laughs> you just said words. I'm just saying words. <laughs> Great. Yeah, mate, love everything about it. I didn't see any of the um, uh, the roos and things. We we had a bit of a quick walk around. Oh, yep. Used to be the wallaroos and yeah. So we used to have roos and friends um, where our current um, uh, campground is. So we, okay. we that we've that space has changed over time to uh, facilitate school camps. Yeah, good um, idea. Which is a yeah a fantastic way to engage kids as well. Um, they come out, they have the opportunity to stay overnight, and uh, we run a. A series of uh, activities and adventures for them in the night and the evening. God, um, they would love that. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely fantastic and it is uh, very well uptaken by our local schools and, and slowly over time being uh, uptaken by our interstate schools as well. But our we do have a um, an area for our macropods. Um, it's now behind the nocturnal house um, in our woodland walk. So it's oh, a large okay. open uh, walk-through exhibit in 
typical savannah woodland here in the top end. Uh, we only hold two species in there at the moment. That's the agile wallaby and the antilopine wallaroo. And there are two, two species that we get locally here. Um, in the past, we used to have red kangaroos, I think, as well um, in that exhibit, uh, in the, the um, kangaroos and friends. Uh, but kangaroos, they don't come this far up. Um, they, I think they peter out a bit south of Mataranka. Um, and the reason for that, it, it's a bit humid for those big guys um, up here. They really struggle through wet seasons. So uh, we've focused on the local species that are naturally adapted to the heat and to the wet season. And, uh, yeah, it's it's much nicer in the animals. I loved seeing your spectacled hair wallabies. Uh, so Boris in the nocturnal house. Boris is a favourite of mine. Um, I was in, in with Boris yesterday. Um, he's an incredible creature. Um, and I'm, we're hoping to, to get a female for him soon um, so that we can actually have baby spectacled hair wallabies because they are adorable. What a beautiful <laughs> animal. Don't breed me one. Go on oh. then. I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. Um, and and um, the Narbalex, those little rock wallabies. Yep. So um, Norbert, also in the nocturnal house. <laughs> Norbert the Narbalex. Norbert, yes, he's the only Narbalex in captivity anywhere in the world. Um, so very, very special creature. The Narbalex is a small rock wallaby that only occurs in the Arnhem Land escarpment. So um, absolute phenomenal um, species and it's so amazing to be able to work with such unique and, and sometimes rare creatures that just are not seen anywhere else. He's the else. only one in captivity. Correct, yeah. that's right. So he came in um, th- through a wildlife care group and... Um, yeah, uh, the, the carers were luckily thoughtful enough to c- consider um, handing him over to us for display uh, just because they don't, don't happen. Uh, we also have a black wallaroo um, that, uh, through our Rocky Ridge exhibit. He, again, is the only black wallaroo in captivity um, anywhere in the world. Um, and we're also looking for a girlfriend for him. <laughs> <laughs> And short-eared rock wallabies too, you yep. saw. Yeah, that's right. Um, in our escarpment exhibit in the Nocturnal House, um, we do have a short-eared rock wallaby. Um, it, yeah, the, the diversity of small macropods up here is just incredible. These are the species that people expect to see when they come up and go bush, but they just so rarely get to see them. And, and places like our Nocturnal House is just uh, incredible for forgetting to see those creatures that you don't normally get to see. And most people wouldn't even know these creatures exist. That's true. That's very true. The northern quoll, we saw, obviously saw the, your northern quoll. Yep. Little beauty. Um, do you still find them around here? Uh, not wild. Um, okay. There are some places that they do occur um, still in the wild, which is fantastic. Um, there's some places near Litchfield um, and some of the offshore islands. Um, they're also present there. So um, there are some some quolls around. The quolls, um, they're very, very rare. Um, uh, cane toads is the biggest reason for them. Um, so the, the quoll, for those listeners that don't know, um, is a, a small native marsupial to about seven or 800 grams. Um, they're sort of a chestnutty brown colour um, and spotted. Um, very unique little creatures, uh, but they're little carnivores. Um, so they'll eat just about anything that they can overpower. Uh, small birds, their eggs, lizards, uh, frogs, and obviously toads. And the toads knock them out. However, the, the northern quoll populations were already in decline before toads came. So toads were almost like the nail in the coffin for those guys. So uh, it's thought that changed fire regimes and different land use practices uh, had caused quolls to to start uh, decreasing in their abundance prior to toads arriving. Mm. Um, so yeah, there, there are some places that they do still occur and we are hoping that over time um, that they, the smart ones that know not to eat um, the toads uh, will keep breeding up and, 
and hopefully their numbers increase over time. And they'll adapt. There was, uh, back when I was here 15 years ago, there was uh, a program with cane toad sausages. Yeah, so that, that's a, that was an interesting program. The, I love the thinking behind this. So um, little sausages were made out of meat um, and uh, some parts of the toad were also minced up into that um, and then these were fed to the quolls and that sounds absolutely ludicrous but the thought behind it is that you give the, the quolls a very, very small amount of the cane toad poison, just enough to make them sick, give them a bit of nausea and uh, the thought is that then they learn and go, well that was obviously a very unpleasant experience, we won't do that again and to a degree it was shown to work. Large scale reintroduction programs are still um, not achievable using that because often uh, captive animals are totally predator naive. So a lot of the animals that do go back out into the bush are snapped up by things like dingoes. So it is an incredibly complex web um, when it comes to introducing animals back into the wild. And uh, that sort of research is still going on and those techniques are being honed and improved over time. So uh, maybe one day into the future we'll be able to supplement the wild population with uh, captive-born quolls. Wouldn't it be amazing if you could soft-release them onto the park here? Yes, well, ideally um, the park would be totally predator-free as well um, and it would be great to, to yeah, start that population again in the local area. Do night walks. And yes. <laughs> do you do a night walk here? Uh, so uh, along with the toad busts, um, we also do twilight nights throughout our, um, our dry season, our beautiful dry season, uh, where people do have access to the park after hours um, and, uh, yeah, can see the... Um, the creatures of the night in their natural exhibit or natural environment. Uh, towards the end of the dry season, we also have Halloween, and um, we we probably host the largest Halloween event in Darwin, um, often getting over a thousand people in attendance. Is that um, right? Oh, wow. Yes, All in costumes. Yes, <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. Great. So uh, we dress the park up, obviously, with all manner of spooky uh, paraphernalia. Um, a lot of the staff get on board and, and dress up as well, and uh, we all have a good time. That's fantastic. <laughs> One of the, I mean, everybody you speak to that's got a native animal as a pet, their ideal job is to be a zookeeper. Here you are doing it. Yeah. Um, what do you say to those people? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I cheated the system. <laughs> <laughs> so I was always an animal person growing up, but I never really had the desire to work in a zoo and um, I have I fell into it so I was incredibly lucky to to get that opportunity but there's there's so many people out there that dream of being a zookeeper and they grow up and it's such a competitive um, field that a lot of people don't get the opportunity to uh, most zoos around the country offer volunteer programs though and, and that's a great way to to enter the industry in terms of getting that captive animal experience getting the understanding of how zoos work and operate behind scenes and um, a lot of zoos will often recruit out of their, their volunteer pool because they've effectively already trained them so uh, if there are aspiring keepers out there that have the opportunity to, to volunteer at their local zoo then get on board and, and take that opportunity it's a fantastic way to get involved um, get some experience and have a lot of fun while you're doing it because yeah, it won't be handed to you you've got to get in there and work hard and work out if it is for you because it's I mean it's not always a, a, a glamorous job is it, it behind it's the scenes not at all um, so a, a lot of zookeeping is picking up poo um, it, it's certainly not glamorous and especially up here it is hot and sweaty work uh, zookeepers work every day of the year they obviously don't get a rate just because it's Christmas the animals still need to be tended to so it is a it is a very um, uh, intensive job, but it is also a very rewarding job. I was say, if you love it, absolutely, like you do, yes. you've got to be, yeah, yeah, the right, the right job for yeah, you. It's a great way to, to try that, yeah, by just volunteering and 
do it. We, we get a lot of volunteers back at Animals Anonymous headquarters and some just come in and they just love it. They'll work and they'll work harder than me. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> no, I want to keep... They, they just really enjoy what they do. And there are others that just kind of, now I've cleaned that, have I got a job yet? Yeah. You know, it's, um, yeah. No, no, you don't actually. <laughs> yeah, um, I th- yeah, the human, the human uh, population I think is evolving over time and... Uh, a lot of the younger generations growing up fairly entitled. I think they expect a lot to be pl- handed to them, and th- that's not how life works. They do have to get in there and, and uh, work hard because that's what life's about. Mm, absolutely. Mate, I love the thought behind the park and, and the constant evolution of it, and the, you haven't just chucked animals in and, okay, that's where we're going to have the big cats, over there's where we're going to have the monkey. It's it's a thematic experience. It's ecologically based. It's yeah. It's, I can't it's a say true it, theme. Every area it? you go is an actual yeah. area. It's, yeah. not, it's not a made-up theme. It's so it's much thought put into absolutely it. Absolutely real. It's yeah. A, yeah, it's awesome. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Massive, massive fan of what you do, mate. Is there anything that you're, you're working on at the moment that you can share with us? <sighs> no. No, yeah. <laughs> turn, turn that recording thing off and we'll have a chat then. <laughs> no, uh, we're, we're always constantly evolving and coming up with new things here. Um, that's that's one of the things that I like about this. It's such a, a fresh and, and dynamic place that there's always something new. Uh, a lot of our... A lot of our visitors come uh, from a local base um, and their return visitors, they come back because not only are we making changes, but it's the the environment changes as well. So you've got the natural shift from wet season to dry season. Uh, exhibits like Goose Lagoon, uh, which is a totally natural exhibit, uh, it fills up through wet season, it bursts its banks, it spills over into the paperback forest, then the water lilies grow, and then we start the drying phase and it goes right through often uh, into a complete mud puddle. And the change of the... the the animal usage throughout the year is just phenomenal. One of the things that I would love to do is do a, a photo point at Goose Lagoon, like every week take a photo from the exact same location and just track the changes. But even one year to the next can be totally different in terms of the, the amount of rainfall we get and then the the, the, the use by the animals. So it's, a, it's a truly incredible place to, to be a part of. I notice all your water lilies are coming into flower now. It's beautiful out there. Isn't yeah, it? it's 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 certainly picturesque. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Has global warming? Have you noticed any changes in the environment with, with global warming? Um, not. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. It, Global warming, I'm sure, happens, uh, but it happens. It's happening slowly. It's happening gradually. Often, people are in places for such short periods of time they don't get to see changes uh, at that scale. Um, I'm sure it's happening. This year, we've had a particularly dismal wet season. In that, I feel like we've had more like a seven-month build-up. Every time we've had or gotten close to having a monsoon, it seems like Queensland gets a cyclone and sucks it all away. Hmm. Queensland's had a very lucky run of, of rainfall this year. That is a natural cycle. Whether it's being exacerbated by global warming, I'm not sure. Um, it, yeah, it's it's a great topic. Um, I'm sure it's happening. It's just very hard to quantify. Mm. Okay. It's interesting. Well, well, obviously, I do education down in southern Australia, and you know, I show kids crocodiles, and I say, "Why don't crocodiles live here?" And yeah. and some kids know it's, it's it's too cold. It's one. It's a funny thing to think that growing up in a 
part of the world with four seasons, and up here you don't have winter. <laughs> it no, just seems strange. We certainly don't have winter. Yeah. Um, daytime temperatures throughout our dry season, um, which is obviously winter, uh, usually get to about 32 degrees still every day, which is a, a blissful temperature. Uh, out here we're a fraction away from the coast, and our nighttime temperatures will all, all drop down to the low teens sometimes, and we all think our throat's cut because it's freezing. Um, but from Southern Standard, it's certainly not cold. <laughs> Well, mate, I love what you're doing here. Thank um, you. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah, and absolutely welcome. Guys, you've got you to get on out and come and see it. I will ask you, though, mate, uh, before, we, before we end this, we, Steve and I have tomorrow off. It's our last day up north, and we're thinking about maybe doing the touristy jumping croc thing, and we're toying around maybe Litchfield. Is there anything you'd recommend, mate? Um, I do like Litchfield. Um, Litchfield is just such a spectacular place. Um, if you visit now, the waterfalls will also be flowing. Um, the what, sorry? The waterfalls yes. will be flowing. Um, so, so there's some great places there. And there's, um, take your swimmers and go and have a swim. There's a couple of safe places to swim there. Um, <laughs> there's a couple of safe places to swim there. <laughs> if there's dogs Sold it to me. <laughs> if, there, yeah, if there's dogs and kids, I believe it's safe We're there. Isn't it? but, yeah, um, places like um, Bewley Rock Hole is just absolutely stunning. It's like natural spa sort of um, small rock holes um, absolute blissful place to visit um, yeah some great places um, the, the um, Parks and Wildlife have invested a lot of money out there and, and upgraded a lot of the facilities and um, places like Tolma Falls the new look out there is just spectacular you're basically hanging over the edge of the cliff and uh, viewing the lovely waterfall so yeah I'd head out to Litchfield it's a spectacular place That's the hot tip yep thank right, you Litchfield mate thanks so much for your time lovely thank to talk you. to you you as well thanks for thanks for coming out and visiting and guys great. thank you for listening